James 1, 16 through 27. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, James chapter 1, verses 18 to 27, or 19 to 27, but we're going to actually start in verse 16. I grew up, I didn't know this at the time, but I figured out later that I grew up in an impoverished environment that was kind of, uh, you know, kind of harsh. And then you, when you grow up in that environment, you learn things over time that you miss. Like there are cultural things that you miss that you don't know until you run into them. One of the things I recently discovered was I'd never been to a Japanese restaurant. Well, that was a weird thing. I mean, where I grew up in Bushnell, Illinois, Taco Bell was the height of cultural diversity when it came to restaurant, uh, restaurants. Um, and we didn't even have one. We had Hardee's and Dairy Queen. Taco Bell was the next town over. <laughs> but I, recently, Carmen and I, my wife and I, went out to um, Modita downtown. It's a Cunningham Group restaurant. Very nice Japanese restaurant with Mike and Mandy McBride. That's the church planters of the Southside Church. They were here for a year. We, they planted several months ago. And an uh, important denominational official. It's like I was on my best behavior. I want to be impressive, you know, and all the stupid stuff. And uh, <clears throat> we went there. And I'm just hoping, like, I'm looking at the menu, is there something I recognize? And I hope they bring a fork, right? Uh, and uh, I saw, for a starter, I'm like, edamame. I know what that is. Edamame. Praise the Lord. Because uh, I get that at Trader Joe's. And when it came to the table, I realized two things. One, the Trader Joe's edamame I get is shelled edamame. You just get the beans, right? Uh, and then at a nice Japanese restaurant, it comes in the whole soybean pod and I'm looking at it and Mike McBride was so gracious because he could tell Roger has no clue and he said I wish you could have done it more subtly but he's like have you ever eaten that before <laughs> and I'm like well not like this he's like he said don't eat the shell don't eat the pod you kind of put it in your mouth and you know force out the, the the beans and that's where you eat it don't eat the pod they're not edible I'm like cool okay great <laughs> I was a little embarrassed not as embarrassed as I would have been had I been like gagging and trying to chew this thing that's not edible, right? In front of this, this denominational official that I'd never met before. That would be my first experience with him. Uh, Mike was actually very kind to me 
showing me that there's actually a way to work with this edamame that is good for you, that, that actually brings the goodness of it into yourself. Right? There's a way to do that, and there's a way not to do that, Roger. This is the way to do it. If you'll allow me a little bit of creative license here, what, one of the things the Scripture is getting at today that Megan read for us is that, I mean, first of all, this, is a, this, this text is a, is a call, an invitation to deeply take into our souls the Word of God. But it's also telling us there's actually a way to engage the Word of God that is fruitful. There's a way to engage the Word of God that brings the goodness of it into our life. And it doesn't have as much to do with the quantity of it that we're bringing in, but our orientation or our posture toward it as we are bringing it in to our life. There's a way of engaging this Word, namely, we listen to it very quickly. We listen intently and quickly. We intend to bring it deeply into our life, and we intend to do what it says, not perfectly, but really. Last week I said, as we looked at the first half of this passage about trials, going through various trials, I said, I don't know of a way in life to become deeper in life unless life is difficult. Difficulty in life creates deeper people. Now, we know this across a broad domain in life. So, how do, how do you grow deep in knowledge and education? Well, when the, the knowledge and education is challenging, when it's hard, when, you, when you're required to learn something with accountability and demanding teachers, we tend to grow in depth of knowledge. How do we grow in depth of health and strength and fitness? Well, when the exercise is challenging and difficult and you do that, that's how you grow in depth of exercise and fitness. How do we grow in depth of life? When life is difficult. That's when we grow in depth of life. But I want to put a little caveat on what I, on what I said last week. That doesn't always happen. <laughs> we can sleep our way right through that and miss the goodness of all of it. We, don't always, we can have a challenging teacher and a lot of accountability and not grow in depth of knowledge if we don't incline ourselves to actually learn and give ourselves to it. Now, when we do that, we might even find that the learning is fun and we, we, we love learning, but it doesn't change the fact that it's challenging. We can... We can watch somebody doing difficult exercise and it has no effect on us whatsoever. It doesn't make us strong. We have to incline ourselves to do that thing. Now, we might incline ourselves in a way that we say, I couldn't ever see myself not exercising this way. Fine, but we have to engage it. We have to incline ourselves in a way that brings about that depth. Life is no different. And depth of life flowing from difficulty happens to lots of people. We're not just talking about followers of Jesus here. This some of the, the greatest poets and writers and philosophers have written and created out of depth of sorrow and pain. I remember when I was a freshman in college reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor and became a psychologist after that. And I remember even as an 18 or 19-year-old thinking, wow, there is a depth of life that can come from difficulty that is very hard to get anywhere, anywhere else. Now, let's add a layer of the gospel to that. The gospel is even better news, that there's a depth of life with the Lord that comes in difficulty, but we have to, it doesn't just happen automatically. We must incline ourselves to it, and the way we incline ourselves to it is not that complicated. It's just challenging. That in that difficulty, we hang on to Jesus. And in the mess of that, over time, what we, f- we sense and what we understand is that our life has been deepened, our soul has been expanded, and we've become deeper people. we become deeper in life. And what this passage is pointing out today is that that is, that is connected almost 
not completely, but it's connected thoroughly to our orientation toward the Word of God. Both in that moment, before that moment of distress, after that moment of distress, it's our orientation toward the Word of God. That means everyone here right now, everyone here right now, you may be in distress in your life. You, you, may, be out, you may be looking and say, boy, I'm glad that, that particular distress is in the rearview mirror. You may be preparing for distress and you don't even know it. We all are preparing for distress and we don't even know it. We're preparing well, we're pre- preparing poorly, but we're preparing for distress in some way. But we can be relating to the Word of God in such a way that it is actually expanding our soul and deepening our life now so that we are changed. So, just so you don't miss it, I put in red at the top of your insert here. We are changed by the Word of Truth or the Word of God as we listen to it quickly, as we receive it intentionally and do it fully. Now, had I... Wrote, written that later during the week, I would have thought differently about it. I would have said we should listen to it quickly, receive it deeply, and do it intentionally. When I say do it fully, I don't mean perfectly. Some of you, when I say do it fully, you're going to be like, oh, I can't do perfect. I can't do it perfectly. The truth is, I'm not wired to think that way at all, so it doesn't occur to me, like, you people with really sense of consciences, I'm not talking about being perfect, just an intention to what Jesus says, that we move in that direction. Last week as a review, we said the book of James, as we started in this, is written to Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution. It's a very early book in the New Testament, perhaps the earliest book in the New Testament, written either by the Apostle James, who was one of Jesus' disciples, or by Jesus' own brother James, who became a follower of Jesus shortly after Jesus was crucified. We're not sure which James that was. But it's a struggling community, uh, probably that was... uh, dispersed or persecuted shortly after Pentecost, early in the book of Acts. And if you think about it, the Romans don't like them because they won't worship Caesar. And the traditionally religious Jewish folks are hostile with them because they have this you know, message about this Messiah, Jesus, and they're upsetting things. So they're distressed. They have all kinds of trials. And last week we saw God encouraging them and you now in various trials. And it ended this way with verse 16. If you'll look at your text there. The culmination of this encouragement is, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, that would be the sun and the moon, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Like the sun and the moon even get eclipsed sometimes, or night comes, new moon. Uh, they change, but this, the one who made them doesn't change. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So at the end of that encouragement and trials, he's like, hey, look for the good things that God has placed in your life. And even if it's so dark that you can't see anything, remember this, you believe. Why do you believe? You believe because God planted his word in your heart and he brought you forth by the word of truth. Peter says, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word. God placed his word, his, uh, the scripture, the, the Old Testament that culminates in the testimony of Jesus for the original hearers. Now we get the whole book. Uh, come in, the, 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 this, the message here has come into your soul and made you born again. It's made a new creation reality in you. This is God's grace to you if you are a believer. This is God's grace to you. It's what he, he offers to you. If you're not yet a believer, he offers a newness of life to you. Not just that, uh, 
this is the, who's called the, the one who's called the father of lights. The, the good news here is like, you don't just get, we don't just get to have new life because of Jesus. We are brought into a new family. And this one who's the father of all creation actually becomes our father, our heavenly father. So that, that gives us a different footing when we're looking at the world. We've, we've been born new to new creation, and the one who has authority over all creation is now is called our, our father, our dad. Now, in this portion, he's giving some tactical wisdom for those who are suffering from various trials. So this is... This is, this is supposed to be practical wisdom for these folks who were suffering persecution in different ways. He says this, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So be quick to hear what? Be quick to hear what? In Jewish wisdom literature, there's a lot that talks about being quick to hear other people. In fact, if you're fast to speak before you hear everything, the Bible has a word for that in the book of Proverbs. A fool. <laughs> if Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears fully, it is folly and shame. And there's other Proverbs kind of getting at that too, like be, be quick to hear. Listen first before you talk. That's just basic wisdom. Now, that's not what this is talking about, though. Though it's true. And we should be quick to hear. We should be quick to hear our friends and our spouses and our children. That's not what this is talking about. What is this talking about? Being quick to hear this word by which we were made new. We know that because later in the passage it says don't just be hearers of this word, but also be doers. Just talking about the word of truth, the word of God. Be quick to hear it. So we listen to it quickly. So we do that quickly, but there's two things we're warned against doing quickly. Speaking quickly and bringing about anger quickly. So slow to speak and slow to anger. That word anger there is wrath. The wrath of man. The the wrath of people. So you think about it, there's an inclination for these hearers to strike back. They're being persecuted. They're being treated unjustly. There's an inclination for them to strike out, to lash out in words and in, in anger and vengeance and wrath. But James tells us in God's economy, the anger of man, and by extension those harsh words, do not produce, do not achieve, don't bring forth the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Now what is that? Well, we, we just sang a song actually. Uh, It was finished upon that cross where it says, Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon the cross. So that's one way the New Testament speaks of righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, the fullness of Christ's obedience and faithfulness to the Father is gifted to us. It's as if we wore that, we we did that, we wear that. That's That's a received righteousness. This is talking about a produced righteousness. This isn't moral formation in us. This is talking, as the New Testament does sometimes, about God's making things right. God's justice. His shalom. His making the world right. Uh, Shalom, for instance, like not being persecuted. 
So their temptation in persecution is think we can make things right. We can bring about God's righteousness by, by attacking our persecutors, by being angry and bringing vengeance. And one thing we have to re- remind ourselves when we read the New Testament is that it's hard to get in this, right? This was a volatile culture. We don't live in nearly as a volatile culture. Think a tribal culture that where, where the government oversight is more spotty. Like, that's more the New Testament. There was a whole political group of people in the New Testament called the Zealots during the time of Jesus. Like, we have Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, whatever, Green Party, all that. There was a political party called the Zealots, and their political strategy was both uh, insurrection and armed rebellion. Right? They were guerrilla warfare fighters. In fact, one of Jesus' apostles' names, not Simon Peter, but was Simon the Zealot. He was, his background was that. So think about like a, a former MMA fighter turned Jesus follower. Like that's like, there's a hair trigger there. Like, okay, Simon, are you cool? Okay. Like there's always that thing going on here, the Simon the Zealot. There's also a couple instances in the scripture that are just harrowing. In Luke 9, Jesus and the apostles are going through Samaria and they come to this Sam- Samaritan town. It's, it's not a Jewish town. And they're like, the Samaritan said, basically, you're Jewish, we don't like you, you can't stop here, you have to keep going. And John and James, maybe the James who wrote this, said this, Lord Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven and kill him? And Je- it, was an, it was a real question. And Jesus rebukes him, apparently he just said no, all it says is he rebukes him. And just because we, in case we don't think that was a real question, to show it's not hyperbole, remember what happened when, G, uh, to, when Jesus got arrested. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this group of Roman soldiers comes, and uh, the administrator of the high priest, who was uh, the political person in charge of them, named Malchus, came with them, and they, they converge on Jesus, and the apostle Peter, like, jumps into the middle, into the fray, and he's got a sword, and he swings it at the head of Malchus the high priest. Now we hear like, it says, well, he cut off Malchus's ear. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear that, right? It wasn't like he walked up saying, let me slice this, right? No. How do you cut off someone's ear with a sword? You're swinging at their neck. You're swinging at their head. It, he was trying to kill the guy and it must have glanced off his skull and cut his ear off. And Jesus, if you remember, picks the ear up and then heals him. But he says to Peter, this is not the way of the kingdom. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. This is not my way. Don't you know, Peter, that right now I could call 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 warriors unlike any we've ever seen in our life against these 15 Roman soldiers. This is not the way of the kingdom. Vengeance and destruction is not the way. Even when persecution is going on. Now, we don't experience the persecution that these guys did. And as we said last week, this, if this is good wisdom for them, how much more for us who, who by comparison experience less? I put in your insert there at the bottom Romans 12, which is a kind of a revolutionary passage, both in that day and in some ways in ours. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So it's the same word. Not the wrath of man, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will do what is right, says the Lord. So to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That would probably, that's probably reflecting coals of repentance and cleansing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The anger, the wrath of man is not the way of the kingdom of God. Neither are many words, speaking quickly, speaking often. Now, uh, we live in a world with many words. I mean, we live in a world where pundits can talk three hours a day, like just not every single day. Like, it's impressive, I guess, but it's a lot of words, right? Uh, The next day, like something can happen And then somebody can have a three-hour YouTube channel talking about that stuff the next day. Like, that's virtually the definition of speaking quickly. I I don't know, like, I don't, even if you like them, right? That's too much talking. That's too much talking. Um, This is challenging in our culture for a couple reasons, right? I've already mentioned, like, we live with lots of words and lots of avenues for words. So, words are many in our culture. Also, anger is virtually the mechanism of getting stuff done. Outrage is the way things get, get done in our culture. Now, that might have always been the case, but it seems like the multiplying the mechanisms of communication have certainly enhanced that. Where, where getting mad is the way to change things. Now, if you've, come, if you've come to awareness of the world in the last 10 years, you might find it surprising to, that somebody would make a case that there's another way to get things done other than outrage. But this, the anger of man doesn't accomplish this. It's what Jesus is saying. And Christians, like, we fall into this, right? Believing Believing anger about the way it should be and acting on that is the way to bring about the rightness of God. He specifically says here, this does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? And by the way, the one who creates all things and holds them together is your father. Right? He's brought you into his family. We can relax a little bit. Look, if, you don't, if you're tired of being angry, good news. We don't have to be angry. But I know, like we're supposed to be, Christians are supposed to be angry. We're supposed to be angry at who? Liberals, Donald Trump and his followers, uh, people who are sexually confused. We're supposed to be angry at history. We're supposed to be angry at, I don't know who, everything. That's how things get done, right? Actually, James says specifically, that's not the way the kingdom of God comes. That's not the way the rightness of God comes. It's not that you should be angry and do something about it. Like a couple years ago, I saw a t-shirt that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I'm like, you know what, I get that. I see that. That's in our culture. Um, but I do know that if we are outraged and action, acting, the one thing we're not doing is bringing about the rightness of God. How do I know that? Well, Jesus says it right here. It's the one way it cannot happen. I remember, 
I mean, and speaking quickly, I remember on the way into work on September 11th, 2001, the day that the 9-11 happened, and um, I was listening. This is, I told you, I'm, I'm not very cultured sometimes, and my, my morning listening is not NPR, it's ESPN Radio. And I, listen, I used to listen to Mike and Mike in the morning. They're not even on the show. Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick. Uh, and, but they were talking about the, the first plane to hit the first tower, and uh, they were talking about this, this terrible loss of life already. This is before the tower fell. I guess the second tower fell first. But anyway, uh, Mike Greenberg asked Mike Golick, I said, what? He said, this is a strange question. There's all, they're also really smart guys. He said, Golick, what do you think somebody who's seen great tragedy, like a Russian novelist, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky would say about this right now? And Golick, who was a f- former pro football player, but also a Notre Dame grad, so a pretty sharp guy, he said, oh, I don't think Dostoevsky or Tolstoy would say anything about it right now. They would think about it for a year and then write something that lasted forever. And that was very instructive to me. That's pretty good for a football player too, by the way. Um, (laughs) That was instructive to me. Uh, Taylor and I have often talked about this as preachers. We live in a culture where people have immediate opinions about things, and they'll produce like, there's reams and reams of stuff produced, and something will happen in the week in in the world, like there's a a shooting or a racial incident or some tragedy, and the pressure is to get up here and say something about it really insightful and have a great take. And we basically say, look, we live in a broken world, and I, I don't have much to say about that right now. And I realize that has frustrated some of you. Okay, I realize that. Here's, we're, here's our commitment moving forward. We're going to say something like this. We live in a broken world, and it's really hard to make sense of it. Just because everybody else has lots of words to offer immediately doesn't mean it's the right thing. In fact, right here we might think, you know what? Speaking quickly is foolish. Right? The first move is like, you know, we want to listen to this. And the, word, the reality is the world's a complicated and broken place. And there's a lot of mess. And it takes some time to, to work it out. And better than speaking really fast because we think we know everything and getting angry and outraged to fix everything, the first move here to the people of God who experience persecution is like, hey, incline your ear to listen. Listen quickly to the word of God. When we're driving somewhere in our, we have a big Honda Pilot, so there's a little bit of road noise that happens sometimes. We usually have the radio on, and my wife will say something. And a combination of the fact that she doesn't speak super loud, and something about the pitch of her voice gets eaten by the road noise. And I listened to a lot of, like, Motley Crue when I was a kid, so I can't hear very well. When, uh, I know, that really dated me. Motley Crue is an old rock and roll band. So anyway, uh, I can't hear very well, so she'll say something, and I feel like, like this inclination that happens when you get older, like, what? Uh, but what, the reality is I want to hear my wife. And she says something, I can't quite hear it, and it's, it's muted by all this other noise. I'm like, I want to I lean in here, babe, what you have to say. Like, what is this talking about? Like, there's a ton of noise in our world. The first inclination is to be, I want to hear, Lord, what you have to say in your scripture. My inclination is quick listening, quick listening. Not just that, though, not just leaning in, but taking it in, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so, so instead of re, reacting to everything with my own words, because I think I know everything, or I'm just angry, the first thing is to, to put away filthiness and wickedness, which we're not going to import meaning that's not there. The filthiness and wickedness is the t- fast talking and anger he's been talking about. Right? It's right there. And with 
Humility, that's where the word meekness, it just means humility. We receive the, the, here the, the implanted word. We receive it deeply. The implanted word, okay. That means this word has in some way by the Spirit been implanted in our soul. We've been born again through the living and abiding word. And this is a perfect picture of God, both God's sovereignty and our agency. Our, the Theologian eggheads would say the cooperative nature of sanctification. How we work with the Lord in sanctification. He begins it by, by tilling up the soil in our soul and implanting this word. And then we keep receiving this word. We keep bringing this word deeply into our soul over and over again in humility. And we often say there's two ways to look at the word of God. From above where we say I like this, I don't like that. Get that out of here, get out of there. I'll keep that, that makes me feel good, whatever. It, that's one way that you end up in the ditch. The other way is to come under the word of God and we say, we're going to receive this with humility. What do you say? I want to shape my life this way. That's receiving the word with humility. This word then is able to save our soul. You say, what does that mean? I thought we were already saved in Christ. Is this a threat that we're not saved? And if we don't read the Bible, that we won't be saved? No, that's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about salvation like salvation from sin. Soul is just the inner part of you. The Bible actually doesn't talk about soul the way we talk about soul in our music. This is a little pet peeve of mine. But anyway, um, what does this mean, save your souls, right? Save, deliver our inner selves. From what? The anger and arrogance this is talking about. How are we delivered from the compulsion to speak like reactively and angry when we're angry? The humble, ongoing reception of the word of God in our life. It's not need, it's messy. But like we just keep, we keep receiving this word, putting away the anger. And, and this is the way our internal state is delivered to not be arrogant, to not be angry. Now it's messy, but that's how the Lord works in it. So it would be something like this, Lord, I know my inclination. I would say, like, Lord, I know my inclination to believe I'm right about every single thing I think immediately because I know. I've thought about this. I've studied this, blah, 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 right? And uh, I'm justified in being angry. This is, it's, I always think every time I'm angry, it's righteous anger. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a righteous anger in the Bible, and this is what I'm experiencing right now. Right? It's, uh, it's stupid. That's not the case, right? But we justify ourselves and say, Lord, I know my inclination to think I'm right about everything and to justify my anger. But what I really need is your word. I need to hear your word into my life and cut through my self-delusion. Cut through my blindness. Help me to see. So in meekness or humility, I need this word to shape me, to reveal what's true, to keep leading me to Jesus. So we lean in and listen quickly. We receive it deeply, and we do so with the intention of holding on to it in our life or working it out in our life. And here he gives this interesting illustration, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it's a little tricky, but I think what this is getting to is that if we're not intent on holding on to what's revealed to us in the Word, then it's useless. If we are hearing 
read the scripture, hear somebody preach something. You're like, yeah, check. I agree with that. I'm not interested in like having that shape my life or doing anything about it. It's useless. You're like a person who looks in the mirror to see what, is my face dirty? And you walk away and say, wait, is my face dirty? You look in the mirror. Like you don't know. You look in the mirror and then immediately forget what it looked like. That's because there's no intention to do what is revealed. Now, this isn't salvation by works or anything else. It's like, what's the posture of my heart? Do I want to actually follow Jesus? And there's a little, there's a little incentive here. This is called the, the perfect law, the law of liberty, that we're blessed by doing. Now, why are we blessed in the doing of this? Now, it's not saying, God's not saying, if you do this, I will bless you. It says, the doing it is the blessing. Why is that? It's called the law of liberty or the law of freedom because the scripture reveals how we were created to live originally. We're actually not created to have an immediate opinion about everything that happens immediately and be angry about it. That's not what we're created for. We're created to live at peace with others and to be reflectively listening to the word of God. So it's called the law of liberty because it sets us free. And there's blessing in doing it because there's blessing in freedom. Now, we live in a world that's twisted away from that. So sometimes, even in that way of liberty, there's friction. Fair enough, that's the way it is. It doesn't change the fact that it's the law of liberty or that it's blessing. It just changes how much friction we feel when we're, we're pursuing that path. Uh, and I just want to step aside and say, it's, t- it's been talking about receiving the word, and at this point, you might be thinking, oh, I don't feel like I'm reading the Bible enough. Okay? These Yahoo pastors, Taylor and Roger, put out this two-year reading plan. We did a year reading plan a couple years ago, and it was super, you know, super fast. We're like, okay, we're going to make it easier for everybody. A two-year Bible reading plan, right? And some of you all are behind in that already, okay? Can I tell you the truth? I'm behind in that. Here, I'll tell you another preach the truth. I'm never behind because I don't catch up. I just skip what I didn't read and go to this day. It's not a big deal. You're free to do that, right? We just give you a plan to to help it for a tool, not for a law. Um, all that is to say, uh, none of the hearers of this had their own Bibles. Nobody had their own Bibles until about the 1550s because the printing press wasn't developed until the end of the 1400s. And even in the 1550s, if you had your own Bible in your family, it would cost approximately what a vehicle would cost today. Thousands of dollars by comparison. Most of the place people heard the word was in gathered worship. So like that's not, a, like not hours and hours of reading. Just like it's, it's not about the quantity of what we're hearing, but about the disposition of our heart when we're hearing the word of God. Are we inclined to hear what he's saying? Do we desire to take it in deeply with intention to actually, Jesus, I want to follow you in this way I've been created to, to walk. That's the, the methodology God has for changing us even in distress for changing us before distress or after distress and in distress. This is an invitation to examine our own heart. And then he gets very practical. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious or faithful, we use religious in a negative way often. It just means faithful. And does not bridle his tongue or restrain his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the careful reader is like, wait, he said what? Because you think he's going to say, if anyone thinks he is faithful and does not bridle his tongue but speaks in a harsh or angry manner, his religion is worthless. But he doesn't say speaks in a manner. He says deceives his heart. Why is that? Well, I think he's getting at what Jesus said in Matthew 15, which I also put in your insert, 
What comes out of the mouth is what proceeds from the heart. From the heart, what comes out of the heart defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And here we can add harsh words that are speedy. These are heart issues that, that come out of not receiving deeply into us this word. And the effect is speech. How do we know? What is a good barometer of how the word of God is affecting us? How are we speaking to those closest to us? Here's a better barometer. How are we speaking to those we're disinclined to like or speaking of them? Right? This shows us how much of an awareness we have of our own need and the mercy God has given to us. When we realize we are deeply in need of mercy, just like that person is, and then maybe the difference is I've received it, it changes how we talk about other people and how we think about us and our own opinion on things. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. So pure and undefiled is in contrast to the filthy and wicked, verse 21. Uh, We think he's going to say pure and undefiled religion is this, Speak slowly, without anger, quickly listening to the word of God. But that's not what he says. It's like a, a, like, what is he doing here? Pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Like, here, what he's doing is you bring it down to the very grassroots level. Are we intending to do the law of liberty? Are we intending to care for the most vulnerable among us? Now, just by way of explanation, right, this is almost certainly the widows and orphans in that uh, immigrant community that had been persecuted. Not talking about all the widows and orphans in Rome. That wouldn't have been possible. Not that there's anything wrong with caring for them. Just not, that's not what this is talking about. It's the most vulnerable among them. And think about what's going to happen in a time of persecution. In any difficulty, right, any time there's, there's difficulty in a social structure, who feels it the most? Those who are already the most vulnerable in a social structure, right? The widows and orphans in this case, like there's no social security, there's no safety net. Like when there's persecution, the people that the very sort of bottom of that that, uh, ladder of social power feel it the most. That would be widows and orphans. He's like, "Don't, don't deny the widows and orphans. Just because you're in distress, don't ignore those who are in more distress. This is simple loving your neighbor. So do this. Like, so in this church community, you honor the widows and the orphans. You honor, well, expand it. Honor the vulnerable. Protect the vulnerable. Love the vulnerable. Why is that? Because it pictures before a watching world who's full of their own words and full of anger the way of the kingdom. It's the way of the coming kingdom where all those who are vulnerable are lifted up and honored in Christ. It's a picture of the world to come that we saw in Revelation 21 and 22, where those who had vulnerabilities, the vulnerabilities are removed because of the work of Christ. It pictures the way the world will be in a world that desperately needs that picture. It also pictures the way Jesus actually is. You know, if there's anybody who had the right to speak quick words against injustice, it was Jesus. He's, he's called the word of God. Everything he said was ever true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He never spoke a word that said that fell to the ground. <laughs> he of all people would have had the freedom to speak quickly 
against injustice. And yet, as Isaiah says, like a sheep before his shears, he was silent. That wasn't going to be the way of that kind of defense. He, of all people, had the the freedom to bring hostility and anger towards injustice. He was the only one who had no sin, and yet he was unjustly attacked and persecuted and maligned at a sham trial and executed, and he did not call 12 legions of angels down. He went into it. Why? Because in that, he was protecting the vulnerable. The widow and the orphan, yes, but not just the widow and the orphan, all of those who were vulnerable and in danger of their own sin. The person in your chair, me. We were vulnerable. Jesus did not speak a word. He did not exercise power to remove himself from the situation because he was rescuing us to create a people born again by this living and abiding word of God who can be quick to hear it, desire to have it deep in our souls with the intention of working it out, and knowing that even when we fail to do that, there's mercy available to us, there's grace available to us because of the work of Jesus. One of the ways Jesus ministers this mercy to us on a weekly basis in this community is the Lord's table. If you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus by faith, not perfectly, but really, you should come to the communion table. I want to pray and